This first Sunday of 2016, we need your faithfulness. We need your mercies and your compassions because we fail so miserably all the time. And so, God, would you work your grace into our hearts? Would you give us an undivided heart for you? Would you meet with these young ones as they go to Friends of Jesus? Would you speak love and truth into their hearts? And would you meet us here as well, even through this week, Vessel, and we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. like to welcome you to faith again and to uh, our launch sermon series of 2016 as we uh, embark on a new year. Every year, faith seeks to anchor ourselves uh, and to encourage each other in the mission and the vision that we believe that God has call, called us to. And there's three words that kind of capture that mission and vision, which is celebrate, build, serve. Can you say that? Celebrate, build, serve. If you, if you can remember those three words, you pretty much captured uh, what our mission and vision is about. We, we, we believe that we're called to celebrate the reconciling work of Jesus Christ, uh, that it is our belief that, that the blood of Christ on the cross unites us into one family with God as our Father. And we believe that that blood is more powerful than anything that uh, seeks to divide us. And so we're committed to the, the ministry and the work and to celebrate and to apply that work of reconciliation. Uh, building grace-filled disciples. We, we believe that that gospel has the power uh, to transform lives, to transform us internally, that we might be effective uh, in our communities and our families in the world. And so uh, we, we encourage us to grow in the grace of God's word as well as to grow in community and fellowship with one another. One of the key things that uh, we encourage in our body is our, our small group ministries. You'll hear more about that. And then we believe that we're called to serve. We're called to serve Penn, Lucy, Baltimore, and the world. You know, Jesus gave a commission to his disciples in Acts 1, verse 8. He says, you, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we believe that believers are given a commission by Jesus to engage locally where they live, to engage regionally, Judea, Samaria, and to also to commit themselves to a, a mission to the world in, in some way. And so for us, that's Penn Lucy, the community that we are presently worshiping in. And of course, Baltimore is our region and then the world. And so uh, we see ourselves... Uh, as a celebrating, uh, reconciling, uh, building, and serving church. And with that, we are first a reconciling church. And, uh, and so this, uh, this slide kind of gives you, you can see the different uh, color intensities. Uh, this one is a demographic of uh, African-American population, and then the white population that could have provided other ethnicities. But it just kind of gives you a picture that in Baltimore, we virtually live mostly in a segregated city. Often, 
communities are living in a lot of segregation. And so we, we are planted really in the middle of one of the most stark intersections of Baltimore, both racially and socioeconomically, which is a wonderful opportunity to flesh out what does good news, what does the gospel look like at this particular intersection in the city. We've been fleshing that out for over three decades. Uh, but we see ourselves also as a regional church, a regional church of, of, of community groups scattered throughout the city, uh, seeking the peace and the flourishing of Baltimore. We encourage members and attenders to be connected into these house churches or these community groups in order to be known, to be encouraged, to be prayed for, to be supported, and also to, to learn your own gifts in the body and how you can support. We can't do that in a large congregational celebration service, but we can do that in small groups. So we encourage that, that, uh, that ministry, and it's also a means for, for us to reach out to our neighbors in our small groups and to be a welcoming presence. And then we're a restoring church. We, believe, we are a Christian community development church. That's kind of the foundation of faith, and you'll be hearing more about that. Uh, and that that is, uh, how do we partner with Jesus in loving his community of Pan Lucy? Uh, and we believe that here it is a really important that we flesh out what does the gospel look like, both in word and deed, in doing justice, loving mercy, being good neighbors uh, to those in our, in our uh, neighborhood. We refuse to be just a commuter church that just comes in and worships and leaves the community untouched. We, we, we want to stand with Jesus where he loves the community and he engages in, in different ways of redemption. And so uh, we have many of our members that live here and we want to partner with them and support and also encourage those at God's calling to possibly relocate into this community to be part of God's transforming work, not just for others, but for yourself. And so you'll hear more about that. You know, the Isaiah 61 says, They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And so uh, restoring, uh, restoration, uh, those are themes that we'll be encouraging. So this year, our focus and our mission and vision is on Pen Lucy, God's Pen Lucy. This is his community. He has a vision for this community, and it's our job to learn what that is and to get on board with that. Uh, next year, we'll be looking at God's Baltimore uh, and how we as a church are fleshing out our mission in a regional way. And then the la and then third year, we'll be looking at God's world. What does it mean for us to be faithful to God's world? So with that, I'd like us to uh, open Acts chapter 8, and uh, let's stand together as uh, the scripture is read, starting with verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, and that is the Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. 
And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The unfolding of the books, or the book of Acts, is about the unfolding of how God moved a small band of unimportant, unknown, uneducated people from a backwater part of the Roman Empire who somehow developed the momentum and force to become the dominant faith in the Roman Empire in just 300 years, reaching even into the life of Emperor Constantine himself. When Christianity began in that Jerusalem city, there was a small group, 120, turned into several thousand, but by 350 A.D., uh, that small group turned into 34 million believers, about 57% of the population. And the question that historians ask is, what can explain the rise of this faith movement? Uh, if you look at Acts, you'll see that the disciples, the apostles, along with the women, did what Jesus asked them to do. They stayed in Jerusalem, and they waited for the power from on high. Uh, we find in Acts 1 that the 120 were in the upper room praying and waiting for God to reveal himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, that's really the first step. We can't do any of this call to this mission without the power from on high. We have to wait on the Lord, and that is a call to prayer. But we see that the Holy Spirit does come in reference to prayer. It comes in power, and he comes with a spirit that is a missional spirit, that we find that a gospel good news is proclaimed uh, among the very diverse population that existed in Jerusalem. The diaspora from all the regions of the Jewish communities came together in Pentecost, and it says that 3,000 came to Christ that day. And we find that the conversion takes place and baptisms take place. And then there was a devotion. They gathered. uh, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And we see this devotion, and they were radically generous with their possessions. And it says that, and the Lord added daily uh, those who were being saved. And so we see this movement taking place. And even uh, when there were things out of order, we find in in Acts chapter 6 where uh, widows were being overlooked in a certain population. Well, they addressed that injustice and uh, they rose up, le- raised up leaders, and the gospel continued to move forward. But at this point, the whole movement was in Jerusalem. For eight chapters, the movement is in Jerusalem. But something took place that changed the course of, the, of Christianity. What happened in Jerusalem? What was the catalyst and the character that drove the church from being a localized Jewish Christian community anchored in Jerusalem to being an international global movement around the world. And what was the impact on the places and the cities where it went? Well, Acts 8 shows us the relentless gospel 
produces great joy as it goes forth. And here we see the missional catalyst, the missional character, and the missional impact that we see in Acts 8. The missional catalyst was persecution. <laughs> it, was, it was persecution. Saul, uh, who eventually became Paul, but at this point he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was, he was in, enraged against the Christian community, believing they were a bunch of heretics, and he was taking Christians and putting them in prison and having them put to death. And, uh, and this is what he did with Stephen, and he went around and he did this, and it says, the great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Uh, and it says that uh, they proclaimed the gospel uh, wherever they went. Scattered went about preaching the gospel. That's what they did. And what, this is, what's interesting here is in Acts chapter 1, Jesus told them, okay, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And they said in Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world. But for eight chapters, they remained in Jerusalem. Now, up until now, there wasn't a whole lot of movement or a vision or a strategy to break out over those barriers. There were no great plans for missionary movement. Uh, no evidence that the people sensed the need to, like, break out and to cross barriers or to start preaching the gospel outside of Jerusalem. Uh, but this is what Dick Lucas said. He said, what was not done because of the slowness of the Christians was achieved by the bitter opposition of God's enemies. What light this throws on the extraordinary power of the Almighty God. It is not simply that God uses his friends and their efforts to advance his kingdom. It is just as easy for God to use his enemies. Nothing can alter God's purposes, and often he uses the works of Satan to accomplish them. So God can even use, and he does, he'll use persecution as a catalyst to move good news out. A lot of times where believers are not thinking about how to create and encourage a missional movement, God has other ways to encourage us. So God's not limited. He's not limited. He can grow the church in times of peace. And he can grow his kingdom in times of persecution. Ajith Fernando, he's, he's, uh, he is the, um, uh, the national director for Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka. He's also a Bible scholar. He's written a commentary on Acts. He says, Luke is not reluctant to describe the pre-Christian vehemence of his latter friend, Paul. He says, I live in a land of turmoil, and I'm often concerned for what our children might think about our decision to stay and serve in the evangelistic organization here. Sri Lanka has experienced persecution significantly in the past and civil war. He says, thus I have naturally wondered what those Christian children would have felt like as they fled their homes in fear or saw their parents dragged off to prison. What has happened to the victorious Christ and the power of the, his resurrection? Why does God remain inactive or even dormant while they suffer? Acts keeps unfolding his deep theology on the sub-theme of suffering as the book proceeds. God is not dormant. He feels the pain Saul inflicts. Luke gives us a glimpse of the victory God is going to win out of this seeming tragedy. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. One person said, the people went as missionaries more than refugees. And so, even the word that is used here that they see that that they 
that the seed was scattered. Uh, that is a phrase that uh, reveals the scattering of the word as the seed. And what did Jesus Fernando says? What is needed in the church? He says we need a theology of suffering. We need a theology of enduring pain. We live in a society that seeks to avoid pain and suffering. Don't wear yourself in doing good. Don't get involved in messy lives of others. Don't set yourself up for hurt and disappointment. Don't become vulnerable to people who may betray you. Don't risk. Don't invest. Don't love. Protect yourself. Avoid suffering. And particularly, stay away from the church. They are just a bunch of messed up people. They will disappoint you, and those leaders will disappoint you. So just stop. And of course, you know, I think there's a lot of things that we see in the media, and that there's a lot of forces that would say, it's true. I need to just stay away from those, quote, believers and Christians that are messed up. You know, I just be a person, a private, I just have my own personal beliefs. But what we see in the scriptures is that God calls us to community, and God calls us to engage. And uh, um, aren't you glad that God decided that he wasn't going to remain aloof to our needs? That he did not stay in glory and to avoid suffering. And he did not say, I am not going to get into that mess and make myself vulnerable to those people. It is our suffering God who came down to you and me. And so we see this movement of God working even through the harshness of persecution to expand uh, and advance the gospel. John Calvin said that persecution that led to the dispersion or the scattering, he says, this is God's normal way of bringing light out of darkness and life out of death. Uh, He says we must discipline ourselves to bravery. Uh, there was an apologist, Tertullian, in the 160, North African Christian. He addressed the Roman Empire, and he says, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to the dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. Uh, this past Tuesday, I went to a service, a funeral service, that was excruciatingly hard. It was, a, uh, was the great-grandson of Shelley Washington, uh, in our, of dear, beloved sister in our church. Her 17-month-old Brandon Washington uh, was one of those who were murdered in 2015. And many of you have got the prayers, and uh, I know that she appreciates the prayers and the support that she's received. And it was tough to be in a service where this young child's life was snuffed out in an act of violence. A lot of weeping that took place in that service. But one of the things that was astounding to me, uh, the, the pastor, the woman that was leading that service, uh, gave an appeal to, uh, to people to receive Christ in that service. And nine people stood up to want to give their lives to Christ in that service. And I I sat there and I said, you know, Brandon only lived for 17 months. And I believe that that young boy is in the glory. But who would have thought that that horrible tragedy would have been a stimulus that would bring conviction to the hearts of people to the point that 
they would stand up in front of everybody and say, I need Jesus. I need this Christ who is bigger than the violence on our streets. And so that's what, that's what I saw. You know, uh, we have a, um, one of our members, uh, Dr. Karsten Valla, uh, he, his specialty is uh, the persecution in China. And there was a panel by the Brookings Institute uh, that was looking at Christianity in China, uh, the rapid growth despite persecution. And he was on this uh, panel. Uh, experts were discussing this growth of Christianity, especially in the year since 1989, after the inf infamous crackdown on the demonstrations in Tiananmen Square. And uh, he responded to this uh, and told uh, uh, the the audience how many Chinese Christians viewed the recent actions against them. And they said this, Chinese Christian leaders look at this as a winnowing effect. So those who are not true Christians will leave the churches. Uh, the Sunday Christians, he said. Uh, the really committed, devout believers will be increasingly strengthened in their faith by this winds of persecution. Honestly, the church buildings may be torn down, which many of them have been, but that doesn't mean the congregation themselves have scattered. Uh, and uh, we're grateful that Karsten is kind of informing the rest of the world and the church about our brothers and sisters who are uh, suffering great persecution in various countries. But we see this, how God uses even uh, the destruction and vehemence of evil forces trying to snuff out good news which is kind of an amazing thing because Christianity is based upon loving your enemies, like blessing those who persecute you, uh, suffering for those who slander you. Uh, and so this is the good news that we hold because that's what Jesus did for his enemies. That's what he did for us. But we see the missional character as they went, as they were scattered, they preached the word, it says in verse 4. And... Philip went down to Samaria, the city of Samaria, and proclaimed Christ to them. So there are four quick components about the character of the mission. It's first urban-centered, it is organic, it's holistic, it's in word and deed, and it's reconciling. We see that just in these few verses. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and this, the word the city isn't just any city, but it's really the prominent city of Samaria. What we see here and what has been consistent with Acts and the movement of the church and even Jesus when he went from town to town or from village to village or city to city, he is going to city populated regions to proclaim the gospel, the good news, because if you reach the cities, you reach the country. If you reach the cities, you reach the world. And we see this uh, really a strategic, God is an urban strategist in this way. I remember some years ago, I went to a conference that was out, I think Furman, Virginia, was out like out in the woods, out in the sticks somewhere. And I'll never forget uh, that I saw this, you know, one of the local young men, uh, this white dude uh, with the headset on, and as I got up closer, I could hear that he was listening to 50 Cent. You know, he's rap, and I'm saying this was years and years ago. I'm saying, wow! I said, here's this dude. He is being influenced by 
what's happening in the city. And the reality is, is that what happens in the city, the, the city is producing the culture that is uh, attractive and is going out in the world. And so as believers commit themselves into the cities, it's bringing transformation to the region and to the world. And that's what we see happen here. And that was the key uh, means that God used in those early uh, beginnings of Christianity to bring transformation. So the city, a city center. But then we see it was organic. It was organic. It said those there was a great persecution against the church, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, and they went about preaching the word. It wasn't that the apostles were leading this charge. It says the apostles, they stayed back in Jerusalem. Now, you might say, well, they were cowards, you know, but that's really not true, by the way, because that's where the, that's where the, the persecution was intensified. Uh, they, were, they were good shepherds uh, guarding the flock, but but what we see is that it is an organic movement. It was a grassroots movement of believers who were empowered to bring good news. They were gossiping the gospel. They were gospelizing wherever they went. And here they went to Judea and Samaria, and they were sharing good news. You know, the, the way the church works is not a top-down thing. The mission of the church cannot be a top-down uh, organization. We can't, you know, the gospel doesn't go forth that way. It goes forth through believers who are empowered and encouraged to be faithful witnesses in their families, in their communities, in their workplaces, vocationally. That's how the gospel spreads. Uh, and we see that Philip, Philip was, this is an interesting thing, Okay, so none of the apostles have arrived to the scene. They did come later to confirm the work of God. They, they were kind of a credentialing group, of making sure that things were done correctly. But really it was the discipling, the multiplying of leaders. And Philip was the, one of the first deacons. He was a, a deacon, and he, uh, he went forth preaching. He was an evangelist. Uh, but what we see is that God is raising up Leaders besides the apostles, God is raising up His people, and and so, and we're having an election uh, to re-elect Sandy and Carneal in January in our congregational meeting. And Sandy and Carneal, for any that know them, they just know that these are men of great devotion and character, and we are honored to have them. But guess what? We need more. <laughs> We need more Carneals and more, you know, Sandys, and we need more women leaders and more women leaders of mercy ministry. And, and so when we do leadership classes and you hear about them uh, and you uh, are maybe approached, I want you to really think seriously about God's particular call to you, that the way the kingdom moves forward is through the mobilization and the development of leaders and disciple makers who are making disciples, and we want to be about that. We want to be a church that's faithful to that organic movement of God's mission. The th third thing is that it's holistic in word and deed. And so we see in verse 4, they went scattered preaching the word. He, uh, Philip proclaimed Christ to them, but we see in verse 7, it says, there were unclean spirits, 
that he had cast out, uh, and many of the paralyzed and lame were healed. And so what we see is we see a proclamation of good news, but with that proclamation, it doesn't stand alone. There is acts of mercy and justice. There's healings. It's a word deed. You know, it says that Jesus uh, was powerful in word and deed. That is the gospel. The gospel is not just word alone, but it's words empowered with transformation. And so we see that this is uh, the nature of good news. John Calvin said, the whole substance of the gospel is comprehended in Christ, that Christ restores a ruined world by his grace, and that happens when he reconciles us to the Father and when he regenerates us by his Spirit and Satan has been put to flight and the kingdom of God is set up in us. I don't know if you captured that, but it's like when God does a work of regeneration, you've become the embodiment of part of the kingdom of God where you are. And it is impacting your culture, is impacting your families and your relationships and your community. And that's what it's supposed to do. And so the gospel comes powerful in word and deed. Uh, Harvey Kahn said, one cannot be a missionary church and continue insisting that the world must come to the church on the church's terms. It must become a go structure. And it can do that only when its concerns are directed outside itself toward the poor, the abused, and the oppressed. The church must recapture its identity as the only organization in the world that exists for the sake of those who are non-members. That we exist for others, for those on the outside. Charles Spurgeon said, A church which does not exist to do good in the slums and dens and kennels of the city is a church that has no reason of justifying its it's longer existing. So we see the, uh, the urban center nature of the church. We see the uh, organic nature. We see the holistic word indeed. And then the, finally it's reconciling. Uh, it's a reconciling church. And we don't know a whole lot about Philip. Philip, uh, it says in Acts 21, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Uh, he, had power, he had raised some powerful women. Uh, but he was one of those recently ordained deacons, and uh, he went down to Samaria. And if you think about Samaria, you have to realize Samaria to the Jews was really an anathema city. It's an anathema uh, region. It's, it's, it's polluted uh, both uh, religiously, ethically, uh, spiritually, and uh, they're considered uh, heretics and half-breeds. In 722, the Assyrians came into north Israel and captured the ten tribes and, and, and took many of them, deported them. But then they also brought in other uh, residents of Assyria, and they intermarried with the, the Jewish population that was there. Well, they formed their own culture, and that Jewish population, uh, which became uh, the center of Samaria, then decided they're going to establish their own temple. They believed that God was calling Gerizim to be the temple, the center of their worship. And so they, and they refused uh, the rest of the books of the Old Testament. They only adopted the first five books of the Pentateuch. And, and, uh, and so they were considered really outsiders and heretics. But here's the deal. Philip went down to Samaria. Philip proclaimed good news to Samaria. Philip touched 
uh, the paralyzed and the unclean, and he engaged and he loved them. And you know why? Because he, his Savior did the same thing. Jesus did the same thing with the woman uh, at the well in Samaria. And so we see that this gospel uh, bridges and the gospel reconciles and the gospel seeks outsiders in order to make beloved brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. And so when you have this gospel character, this reconciling, uh, holistic, uh, organic, uh, urban-centered kind of gospel, what happens? What is the impact? Well, the impact is joy. (laughs) And so there was much joy in that city. And uh, some months ago, we had a whole series on Philippians, which is the focus on joy in it. And joy, we said, is that continuous, defiant, nevertheless hope in Christ. Joy is not just a momentary happy feeling, but it is a deep spiritual sense that God is in control and that whatever happens is okay because he is a good God, he's a sovereign God, and his purposes will stand. And so I can rest in peace with that. You know, we heard from Proverbs, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. And so we have seen uh, a very tough year in Baltimore. Uh, It's the highest per capita of murders in any year. Uh, 344 lives were snuffed out. And there have been lots of ideas of how to strengthen our city and our politicians and our leaders are trying to address those things and they should and we need to be a people that in pray for the peace of our city and the prosperity of our city but regardless of all of the possible solutions in housing and education and crime and, and police community reforms uh, the reality is is that it's not going to deal with those hard issues It's not going to deal with the anger issues of a young man who feels betrayed by uh, society or life. It's not going to deal with those emotions. It's not going to deal with how do you help uh, a woman to be a good mother or a father. And so we we need to recognize the limitations of government. One of the interesting things was this this evaluation of of, uh, Sandtown where Freddie Gray uh, lost his life. Uh, there was a big study, you know, Sandtown became uh, kind of the center of uh, the urban development for two decades. Uh, The federal government, local government, city government sunk in over $130 million addressing many different uh, ways. And after the evaluation, they realized that a lot of the statistics got worse and not better. And it was really hard because, I mean, they had concentrated so many resources and tried so many things, and uh, they're still trying to figure out what they did that did not work. Uh, but one of, our, uh, one of our friends over there that's a pastor, uh, an elder, Elder Harris, he says, you have to be committed for the long haul. You can't come in and think you're going to save Sandtown, and then you leave. It is investing in people. It's about building trust and relationships and then listening. It's one thing to build houses. It's another thing to rebuild people. And here's the deal, church. You have the treasure. (laughs) You have the treasure of God within you. This treasure in vessels of clay that 
that we have. And, and so we're called to be uh, that presence in the community. And so I asked various resident members of our church uh, who live in Penn Lucy, uh, you know, what does joy look like for Penn Lucy? And here's what Jeff Beans, Jeff Beans, he is the director. He is, he's the director for the Penn Lucy Action Network, which is our, our community, Christian community development arm. He says, I think that celebrating Penn Lucy for what it is instead of what it is not would bring a lot of joy. It's basically celebrating the strengths that we see in the community. Uh, and then a crystal, Crystal uh, Norman, who lives on 41st Street, said, Joy for Penn Lucy would be no vacant houses, clean lots and streets, children respectfully playing, and neighbors peacefully in fellowship with one another. What a great vision that is. Uh, Emily Sipple, our Dr. Sipple, who lives on 41st Street here, is also assistant of our youth ministry leader. She says, I see joy in Penn Lucy and the kids playing in the street and hanging out on the porch. The picture of heaven from Zachariah, the city streets will be full of boys and girls playing there. What a great vision of just seeing kids feeling safe to be playing outside. To see community leaders, she said, united in their vision to mobilize the many talents and resources in our community, making streets safer by improving education opportunities. Paula Sullivan, who lives on Belgium, she said, joy in seeing the church loving our neighbors, caring for the downcast, providing and caring for people in Penn Lucy in the time of need. And Sandy and Laura Clark. And by the way, when I'm reading these names, a lot of these folks have been here for decades, investing, being good neighbors. We are honored to have them in our midst. And our church wants to come alongside and figure out how do we strengthen our called to Penn Lucy. Sandy said, we see joy in Penn Lucy when neighbors care for each other, when kids succeed in school, and when parents are there for their kids. Jocelyn, who's sitting in the front pew here on Wine Oak, she says, there's lots of joy to be had on Wine Oak Avenue. There's an elderly gentleman who is always ready with a pleasant greeting, a smile every time I leave my door. He sits on a block wall, and he just is a presence. He says, I always feel safe that the block is being watched over. And there's another elderly gentleman who keeps uh, mowing the grass on her side of the street. Uh, Lisa Scheidt, our, the beloved bride of our youth director, she says, I have seen joy in Penn Lucy with neighbors calling on neighbors at times of need, knowing that they can count on each other. She said, joy has looked like inviting one another into our homes despite vastly differing beliefs. She also said this, joy looks like a neighborhood potluck-style Bible study or any form of community connection with growth in the knowledge of Christ as the center of all joy. You see, she knows that the center of joy is Jesus. And we need to create space and times and opportunities. We have a great kitchen this next year. Uh, one of our visions is to see a lot more community uh, fellowship gatherings of, around, around food, which is always welcome. Now, where have I seen joy in Penn Lucy? Uh, well, this one picture, uh, I came, this was the day after the riots in Sandtown. Uh, Blake had arranged to gather our youth together and various leaders to go over there to help do some of the cleanup. And when I drove down 42nd Street and I saw these youths from our community and other leaders gathered to pray before they drove over to Sandtown, I had a lot of joy in my heart. That, to me, was a sign of the kingdom. Uh, we aren't we just about what ourselves and about this community, but we were about the city. We were about 
uh, a neighbor in need. And then this next slide, uh, this was the Appalachian Service Project uh, this past summer. 17 of our youths and leaders spent an entire week in a uh, really kind of at-risk, low-income community in Appalachia to help families in need. And uh, what a beautiful picture, Penn Lucy, you, it stood proud. I mean, it was uh, an amazing thing to watch. And then a week later, we had the Penn Lucy Works Weekend where there was about 50 folks from this church and a Cumberland uh, church gathered together and did renovations and rehab in and, and about six different houses in the community. It was a, a lot of joy, and I think there's a picture of James Allen. And then we had last summer the, uh, the Plan Arts concert. Uh, Sarah Kennedy and Kelly Ziffer and others were providing leadership in coaching and developing the talent of this community in our church uh, and what a beautiful picture of celebration that was right across the street. I want to go back and I want to show you a moment of joy for me and that actually continues to be a, a moment of joy uh, is this picture here. This is Faith Christian Fellowship Summer Camp 1989. Uh, we would have uh, you know, a camps that lasted like six weeks. Uh, Joe Nelson was leading uh, those camps for about 10 years, and it was a gathering of our families, kids, and the kids from the community. It was a beautiful, wonderful thing. I'd love to see something like this happen again. But anyhow, uh, my kids are here, but uh, this is a group of uh, reconciling youth. And, uh, but in the back, there's a tall, young, handsome young man uh, who lived on this street, uh, and his name was Robert Jackson. His name is Robert Jackson. And uh, his grandmother, Gussie, was right here on 42nd Street. And he hung out. I got to know him. And, and uh, he became one of the youth leaders in our, in our summer camp program. And, you know, as time progressed, he graduated from uh, Douglas High School on the west side. Uh, some police officers kind of took some interest in him. And he ended up going to the police academy. Kind of lost touch with him. He eventually became a detective. Um, well, this is Robert Jackson today. This is 27 years later. And uh, Robert Jackson decided after the Freddie Gray riots, uh, West, that West Baltimore area was an area that he actually grew up near. Besides being with uh, Gussie here as his grandmother, he lived with his mom around the Mondalman area. And he asked to be assigned to the Sandtown area. And uh, he is now the captain of that district. And um, he was actually here at our Easter service. But there was a, he's gotten some press from uh, other cities. Uh, Washington Post came and did a big interview with him. And uh, one of the things that's captured people is the kind of policing that he does. We all know that we need good policing. We know that there's a lot of uh, reforms that need to happen and that uh, the issue isn't policing it as itself, but the injustice of, of some police and some of the systems that need to be reformed. But uh, so he's walking in the streets of uh, Sandtown and uh, this woman, uh, he gets this hug uh, uh, from, from this resident, uh, Lisa Mills. And in the interview, he, he realizes that this is really the measurement of success for him in Sandtown. He says, the measurement of success for me 
is uh, not how many uh, arrests I make with drug dealers or, you know, uh, but it's on how many hugs I get from the residents. Uh, and how many residents know my name? You know, he realizes the nature that good policing is personal. Uh, being a good neighbor, you know, being a strength that people can, 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 can not just look to to protect them from injustice, but to be a, pres- a personal presence. And, you know, I have to think, you know, back in 1989, who would have known that Robert Jackson, this 12-year-old boy on 42nd Street, who then got kind of caught up into this ministry of this church, would move through life and to become the captain of one of the, the hardest communities in Baltimore, but he's leading with truth and grace in that area. And I have to believe that this church had some part of shaping his character. That, to me, was a lot of joy when I read that article and I've just followed his life. We need to keep praying for him and for other in our city. What's joy look like for you? What's joy look like for you in Baltimore, in Penn Lucy? Think about that. But as we've heard these stories, we should just kind of be thankful. We to be thankful and to keep encouraging each other to be gospelizers in our own communities and in Penn Lucy. Uh, uh, the one thing I want to encourage you on is uh, the prayer. If there's anything to be praying for uh, uh, leading up to that, and not, that's all my application right now is to be prepared for prayer. So how do we strengthen ourselves in this good news, this gospel? Well, this table is a reminder to us that we need strength all the time. Jesus gave this table as a means of grace because we forget so much how, you know, God's love for us and his grace for us. But he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so he knows that we need to do this often. We do this once a month, the first Sunday of the month. And this is a reminder of God's undying love for you. This is a reminder that regardless of where you've been and what you've done, this is not a table for perfect saints. This is a table for sinners who have humbled themselves and have claimed Jesus to save them from their sins. This is a table for wrecks. And so if you feel like you're a wreck here, and you're calling out for Jesus to save you, this table is for you. And, uh, but if you haven't done that yet, I encourage you just to pray that God would reveal himself to you more so that you could come to this table as a son or daughter of God through Christ. I'd like to ask officers to come forward. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you uh, for this reminder of your eternal love for us. Lord, we are a forgetful people. Uh, We are a needy people. We are a messed up people. Lord, we need you. And so we pray that you would strengthen us through this meal, that you remind us of of your love, but you also remind us you've called us to mission, Uh, that you didn't just call us just to to be isolated and to be uh, disconnected, but Lord, you've called us to be in a community to reveal your light and your love in the world. So we commit this meal to you in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, after taking the bread, he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Eat of this in remembrance of me.